This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys toward peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 231 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with fellow anti-diet dietitian Julia levy Indidru about her experience with the wellness diet and binge eating disorder, why there's no such thing as quote-unquote light restriction, how pregnancy affected her relationship with her body, how even body liberation activists can still be triggered by diet culture, and so much more. It's a really, really great conversation. I cannot wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I just want to say, if you're having any sort of panic or fear about coronavirus, I hear you. I'm with you. I'm, I feel so much compassion for you. I record these intros about two weeks ahead of the actual podcast air date, so I'm not sure what's actually going to be going on by then. But right now, we're in the, in the thick of it. I just went to the drugstore yesterday for some stuff, and I saw that the entire shelf where the sanitizing wipes are usually kept was empty, that there was no more rubbing alcohol on the shelf. There was no more hand sanitizer in the store. Like people are freaking out and I get it. It is scary. And the minute we start panicking, the minute we start getting anxious, it actually reduces our immune system's ability to fight off infections. And so the best thing we can do is actually to try to remain calm, to use stress relieving practices that are beneficial to us, like meditation and yoga and calling friends and having our support systems around us and cuddling our pets and all of the coping skills that we use in life to heal from disordered eating as well. And I know that a moment like this can make it harder to use those coping skills that are helpful and useful and not fall back on disordered eating because that is a coping mechanism that we've used in times of anxiety and stress before. But I just want to highlight that I know this is a time of extreme anxiety and the best thing you can do for yourself is to try to reduce that anxiety through positive means and try not to fall back on the coping mechanisms that are going to hurt you like disordered eating. And now I want to switch gears a little bit and answer this week's listener question, although it might not be as, as much of a switching gears as you might think, because it is kind of about anxiety, in this case, anxiety about particular foods. It's from a listener named Steph who writes, Hi, Christy. I'm a longtime listener, and I've been working hard to relinquish restrictive practices and thoughts in my life. As you know, we are surrounded by so many triggers. Even navigating a regular day can sometimes feel daunting. 
I'm particularly susceptible to messages about digestive health and food allergies and sensitivities. I've recently seen a lot of TV ads for a certain brand of home testing kit that screens for food sensitivities that the actors in the ads claim have been missed by doctors. What do you make of these at-home tests, and do you think they might accomplish anything other than encouraging further disordered eating? Thanks so much for all the incredible work you do, and I can't wait to read your book. So thanks, Steph, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So I'm really glad you asked this question because I've seen those ads on TV too, and they make me just so furious. I think they're so irresponsible. Um, So I'm not naming the brand here, even though Steph asked about the particular brand in in the initial question. I'm not naming the brand because I don't want to promote them in any way. But based on all the research I've done about this over the years for my book and for my clients and my own edification, I think it's safe to say that any home testing kit for purported food sensitivities, as well as many of the tests that alternative health providers and even some medical doctors these days are using to diagnose supposed food sensitivities, are really a load of BS. And as you said, Steph, they really don't accomplish anything other than encouraging further disordered eating, other than making people more anxious and more scared about food. And I say this because these tests are really based on unsound science. So the home testing kit that you mentioned, Steph, is one that uses IgG antibodies or measures IgG antibodies, which their advocates say are a way to diagnose supposed food sensitivities that doctors supposedly miss and that purportedly manifest as all kinds of different conditions like bloating and other unexplained digestive issues, as well as, you know, fatigue and weight gain and acne and dry skin and stuff that wouldn't seem to have any relationship with something that you eat at first glance. So basically, all symptoms that aren't fully understood or don't have a hard and fast cause or cure, and which are in most cases just part of being human, right, all these things— get attributed to supposed food intolerance in this view. And they get lumped together and sort of like food becomes the panacea for supposedly treating these issues. And what's even sneakier about this explanation, this sort of like it's all down to the food explanation, is that the reactions to these supposed food sensitivities are said to be delayed so that it's not immediately obvious which food is quote-unquote causing the problems. You have to take their test and pay the money to take their test, right, in order to know. But the problem with these kinds of tests is that IgG antibodies in the blood don't actually mean you have a food intolerance or food sensitivity. In fact, research shows that it's actually the reverse. IgG antibodies are markers of food tolerance or food desensitization. So if you take one of these tests at home or at the doctor or at the naturopath or whatever, and it shows that you have IgG antibodies to a bunch of different foods— It just means that you've been exposed to those foods. You've eaten those foods recently, and your body is not sensitive to them. Your body actually tolerates them very well. And the way to know if you've been given one of these bogus tests is if your results are a long color code, often color coded list of foods that you're supposedly intolerant to. 
like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 foods, right? And I've seen people, many people who've had 20 or more foods on these lists, things that they regularly eat, which of course makes them feel like they can't eat anything anymore because they have a sensitivity to every food under the sun. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is all the stuff I eat all the time. So what am I going to do? And the truth is, it's exactly the opposite. They're seeing these IgG antibodies in the blood because they eat those foods regularly, because they're not sensitive to those foods. But unfortunately, when people get these kinds of results and they don't know that the IgG test is bogus, they often start restricting in response to these results. And that can just make everything worse, all of their symptoms worse and their mental health worse as well, because their disordered eating ramps up to the next level. So I would definitely recommend steering clear of any supposed food sensitivity tests that you see advertised to consumers on TV or elsewhere, and also being really judicious about the medical providers you go to with questions about food sensitivities and the kinds of tests that you'll accept from those providers. So if a provider tries to give you an IgG test for food sensitivities, G as in girl, run for the hills, right? The only food sensitivity tests that are actually validated and that are supported by the allergists and immunologist boards are IgE tests, E as in elephant, and an IgA test, A as in apple, is what rules out or diagnoses celiac disease. So IgE and IgA are validated tests for particular reasons, and IgG is not a valid scientific test for anything. And even with the IgE test, by the way, E as in elephant, you're not supposed to test indiscriminately for IgG results. It's only if you feel like you've had a known reaction, you've definitely noticed something in response to a particular food, you can get an IgE test to confirm or rule that out or sort of narrow down what the issue might be. But IgE and IgA really should only be used in specific contexts by doctors who know what they're doing with those tests. And really, in most cases, and I know that there are some exceptions to this, there are some great naturopaths and other alternative health practitioners that listen to this podcast. But in general, medical doctors are really the ones that are going to prescribe those tests, and they're going to be the ones who are most likely to choose the appropriate test and not give you some bogus IgG test, which is not valid, right? But I have seen, unfortunately, some gastroenterologists prescribe an IgG test, which is horrifying. So, you know, there's no scientific basis to those tests. There are also lots of other forms of bogus testing that are embraced by some members of the alternative medicine field and the medical community, and they're not scientifically sound. And that is a story for another podcast, but you can check out my book. I talk a lot more about those other bogus tests there. You can read the buy the book at christyharrison.com slash book to get a more in-depth look at the problems with food intolerance testing, supposed food intolerance testing in general. I'll also link to a scientific paper in the show notes for this episode that discusses these unproven diagnostic tests and why they're so problematic. It's just one of many papers and, and studies about this issue, which you could find in PubMed if you're curious, but I'll link to one that I think is really good as an overview of this topic in the show notes. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly than I do here, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. 
The course has a monthly Q&A podcast that's just for course participants, where you get to ask your own question every month or questions, however many you want, and have me answer them. And you get to listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so that you can work through the nuances of intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. The course also has 13 modules of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, plus a private community forum just for course participants so that you can have daily guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great people who are on the anti-diet path with you. And people find that forum so incredibly valuable because community is really important when we're going down this anti-diet path because it can be kind of lonely. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Master Your Anti-Diet Message, my online training for fellow health and wellness professionals that is enrolling now for its next workshop on March 27th. This training is for fellow health and wellness pros who know that diet culture has controlled the conversation in our field for way too long and that it's high time for a change. If you're ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health, start advocating for anti-diet approaches that truly help your clients and your audience's well-being, build a thriving brand or practice that magnetizes clients who are ready for change, and help them break free from dieting and disordered eating for good, this workshop is for you. Registration is now open for this workshop, and it's taking place online on March 27th. And there's going to be a replay available for folks who can't make it, so feel free to sign up even if you can't be there live. But if you can, it's a great opportunity to ask me your questions as well. Just go to christyharrison.com message to register now. That's christyharrison.com message. I also want to announce a new date that just got added to my book tour schedule, which is super exciting. On April 25th, I'll be in Los Angeles to teach a class on intuitive eating at a meditation center in West Hollywood, followed by a Q&A and book signing. And I would love to see all of you there or anyone who can make it. And there are a few spots left for my day retreat in Melbourne, Australia with Fiona Sutherland on June 18th. So you can learn more and sign up for both of those events and check out all my other upcoming dates at christyharrison.com slash book. That's christyharrison.com slash book. And now without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Julia Levy and Didgeru. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. My relationship with food growing up uh, was quite difficult. It really dates back from when I was a very small child. And I think it was because my mom was quite worried about my body and weight ever since I was born, almost. So I can't really think back of a time where I didn't have just a difficult relationship with food and pacing myself, you know, quote unquote, and stuff like that. What was it that your mom was so worried about? Was she told that you were too big? Was there a fat phobia in there? I think that was more about her own history. So she grew up in a family where um, there was a lot of commenting on her body, telling her that, you know, she was too big. My grandmother was always on a diet. And I suspect that she probably had her own like eating disorder uh, going on. So my mom always had that, you know, in the back of her mind, body weight, like very important to her. So I think that when she, when I was born, she just really didn't want me to go through what she had gone through. And like you say, sometimes on your podcast, she tried to have me be thin instead of like fighting like the weight stigma, which is a true problem. So she was really hoping for me to be thin 
actually when I was just born a doctor told her you know if you like babies a bit slimmer just don't feed her as much oh my god and if you like them like plump then just go for it that's horrible and also like if you like babies slimmer like what does that even mean that's oh so gross yeah totally so I think that that really stuck with her and uh, I don't know what happened there like I don't remember if she I don't think she restricted me that much like she breastfed me and But as I grew up, I think it became more and more clear that I wouldn't be like a very thin child. So, yeah, it was just like for her, I think she really wanted me to be able to control my body and she wanted to help me to do that. And one of the things I think that really kind of made it very difficult when I was really small is when we actually came back to Montreal because I was I was born in Montreal, but my first three years I spent in West Africa with my parents. They were working there. And when we were in West Africa, you know, obviously I started this introduction to solids, all of that before we came back. So I was already eating, but my mom really had a lot of control over like the fun foods I was having because the access wasn't the same over there. So I wasn't really used to like candy and stuff like that. And when I came here, first of all, I was the big family was there. Everyone wanted to, you know, spoil me, give me all sorts of you know, fun foods and stuff. And uh, there was just way more access. So it was like everywhere. And uh, I kind of fell into it. You know, as a kid, I was like super excited. She was telling me about it, kind of half laughing, half like being desperate, feeling desperate about it. <laughs> she told me how, yeah, she, I was just like all over the the sweets and she was like trying to let me have it because at the same time she also really enjoyed food and and she wanted me to you know have yummy foods but at the same time she was worried that I would you know get bigger and that was a big concern of hers was the sort of fear about you're getting bigger it sounds like it was rooted in sort of intergenerational dieting trauma and stuff where do you think it came from with your grandmother because I feel like you know sometimes going back generations and I know in non-western cultures too it's like not as common to be so concerned about thinness so I'm curious where that kind of originated do you think that's really interesting actually my mom her background is a uh, Jewish so she's uh, her mom is a um, Ashkenazi Jew and her dad is a Sephardic Jew and she grew up in Egypt for her first four years of her life. Uh, so my grandparents uh, also grew up in Egypt. They were both born there, but then their families were from elsewhere. So it's just like they're Jewish. You know what I mean? That's the culture. That's a really interesting question. I don't know. I don't know where that came from, to be honest. I think my grandmother was always very into like looks and fashion. I think it was a lot about, yeah, just being a very attractive. So she was like so invested in her looks. And uh, I think that those probably influenced by, you know, the just the beauty standards at the time. And I think when they came here, I'm not sure actually um, in terms of, yeah, was it better to be like extremely thin or where it was in those years? But for sure, she wanted to be much thinner than she was, my grandmother. And that's when uh, my mom was telling me that, you know, there was like almost no food in the fridge and she was just like going through a lot. But I'm not sure actually culturally, but actually now that we talk about it, <laughs> I'm remembering that my family. So when they left Egypt, it was during the Nasser era. So they kicked everyone out of Egypt and uh, my family went through France. They spent a few years there. And uh, I think there is in France. So the beauty standard in France, definitely at the time and still now, is like always slimmer. It's like slim is what you want, you know, very slim. Mm -hmm. 
And they really, I think culturally, my family would definitely define itself as being like French and Jewish Egyptian, but very French. So in terms of those standards, I think they took on that. Then they took on, you know, of course, the language and just the, yeah, a lot of the culture came from France. That makes so much sense. Because France, yeah, definitely seems like it's been, it's had that thin ideal for a very long time, certainly. Yeah. And so for you then growing up in that, in that world where food was being kind of so uh, monitored and maybe policed, how did that affect your relationship with food then when you had sudden access to all these sweets and then there was still this anxiety around your body size? I don't remember, you know, those years that my mom was talking about, about uh, the times where I was just eating all the candy, the new stuff. But I know for sure that it affected greatly my relationship with food, the way it was so restricted. So my mom didn't buy any of the fun foods at home. And it was just, it always, to me, in my mem- I don't have a memory where food, like fun foods weren't very special and like restricted, you know? So to me, it was just, that's how it was, you know, in my life. And it took me years and years to finally find intuitive eating and kind of understand that, no, you know, it's not that special to have cookies at home type of thing, or just to indulge, uh, just to have dessert on a weeknight type of thing, you know? So it definitely affected it greatly. And it was, it made me struggle with it. And as soon as I could kind of take control over the foods I was eating, I took control by just taking on the dieting basically for myself. It didn't come in the form of rebellion. It was actually just sort of turning that weight bias in on yourself. Yeah, it was very much that. And actually there was a rebellion. So ever since I was a kid, I binged, you know, I would like go to, as soon as I went to like uh, some family members, I would definitely just eat a lot of the foods that I couldn't have at home. So that was my way of rebelling and I always did. So I think when I started dieting, it was just, I still rebelled, but just I, the restrictive part I took on, but the rebellion was still there. I was still, I was still binging. I was still like, yeah. So I was going through the yo-yo, but just, I did the whole thing myself instead of my mom having to tell me to do it. Right. That's so interesting that you took on the entire process and so natural to have that, that ping ponging or that restriction pendulum, you know, between restricting and then swinging over to the side of binging. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was because, you know, I love my mom and uh, I really looked up to her and I really modeled her a lot and she was dieting too. So as soon as I could, we kind of bonded over it, you know, it's so sad, but as soon as I could kind of do things myself, be more independent, like I got the books, I started reading them, we would talk about them. It was like what you did and it was a way for us to bond I mean, that's so interesting to think about in in the context of diet culture, because it's like one way in which dieting sort of becomes your culture or supplants your culture. It's like this bonding over restrictive eating practices and diets takes the place of other ways that you could be connecting. Yeah, that's so true. And it's really sad. It's really sad to think about because it was taking up a lot of time in, in just in our relationship, but also for myself. It was like my hobby, you know? So yeah, it's definitely um, taking, took up a lot of space and and time. And, you know, my mom passed away actually in February and it's just sad now to think about that time that we could have spent doing way more important things and fun things. And she was such a lively person and intelligent and it's just really, yeah, it's quite unfortunate. 
That's so sad. And I think that it's like this fake sense of bonding, right? Because it feels like you're doing something important. And I had moments like that with my mom too. When I was in my disordered eating days, she got kind of sucked into wanting to diet with me and like knowing my secret because I was, I had lost some weight temporarily, of course. And so we started dieting together. And I think it's so natural to kind of be drawn to that, you know, like sharing that experience with someone that you love in this culture, because that's what we're told to want and to do. But it really is such a hollow and shallow way of quote unquote bonding. It doesn't really, it's not the type of bonding experience that really look back on fondly and say, remember those times, <laughs> you know, like, like the time we did that fun thing. It's like, oh, remember the, the sad way in which we used to restrict ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, the the thing that kind of made me feel like it was still not great to be dieting at the same time is that my mom always told me that I was beautiful. And she always kind of said it was more about the health than the than the beauty of my body. And, and she, all, she was always the one to tell me, like, you look so beautiful, all that. And obviously, she valued appearance, too, but uh, not as much as my grandma, but, she, you, know, she, you know, she did. And so she was always telling me, even when I yo-yoed, it didn't matter. You know, she would always tell me, like, you're beautiful. And I think that might have been protective, you know, just to know that she, it was a, a way for her to tell her, to tell me, you know, that she really loved me, I think. And uh, not to tie that up with like, I don't like you. I don't love you when you're not thin type of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's so protective to have her giving you that unconditional love, even no matter what, you know, happens to your body. Because I think there are sadly so many people who hear the opposite of that message, right? That you're only loved if you're thin. Yeah. And it was very difficult, obviously, to go through all, all of the dieting and even the different conversations we had about weight. And, you know, she did tell me, there was this weight that I, she told me that I should never surpass. And that was pretty traumatizing, you know, looking back. But there was always this like sense of like, she cares so much and she's such a loving mom that, yeah, it, it definitely, it was very protective. And I really feel for, you know, those people that were told the meanest things and just felt that they're really like their total, their entire worth was based on that. You know, that must have, yeah, it's so hard to, to go through. Oh, so hard. And I mean, even like, you know, those those moments of being told there's a certain weight you, you shouldn't surpass or that just being told to diet in the first place is so traumatizing in and of itself. But it's like another level when someone says, also, you're not loved unless you are thin. I think it just kicks that trauma up to such a high degree. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that sounds so painful and so difficult, but it sounds like also you really bought into it at the time. So you didn't even necessarily see it as a problem. You saw it as, you know, something that you should be striving for as well. Yeah. I saw it as like the big problem that I had to solve for myself. Being like a somewhat of a perfectionist, it was like this big challenge. Like my weight was like this thing that I had to figure out. And even like I think my friends were, I was that person that would tell people like, oh no, you know, stop restricting so much. Like that's not the way to go about it. You know, like I was doing a bit of reading. I was like really trying to figure it out. I really took like a scientific interest in it. And eventually that led me to go into nutrition. But yeah, I was, it was just like this big question mark in my, in my life. Right. It was like that. Yeah. The thing that you had to organize yourself around. Well, I'm curious too how that led into into studying nutrition because I think that is so common for so many of us, the sort of personal pursuit of thinness and 
perfection and eating and all of the stuff leading into, you know, that scientific interest and eventually deciding to pursue it as a career. Yeah. The unicorns that go into nutrition because they really love food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So few of us really. So few. But I have a, fr- a friend of mine is like that. I'm always like, wow, that's, that's crazy. But yeah, most of us have uh, comes from you know that trauma and for me it was so I did a bachelor's actually in psychology and then I took a gap year because I didn't know you know what to do and I went to France during that gap year and uh, in France I struggled a lot with um, restriction and binging so I think when I was in France I probably could have been diagnosed with um, binge eating disorder pretty sure and it was the I'd never been in such pain before you know over that Obviously, the binging to me was the big problem. And so during that time in France, trying not to eat carbs in Paris, which is really the silliest thing <laughs> one could ever try to do. <laughs> so impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. So it's so dumb, you know, really. But anyway, so I looked into um, the science finally of weight. Well, I guess not finally because it wasn't the first time, but I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. Like I was suffering so much, you know. And so I started reading and I didn't find the best resources, to be honest. I didn't figure it out, obviously, but I was just obsessed with it. And at one point, my parents came to visit me and I was talking about nutrition because that's all I could talk about. And my mom was like, but why don't you just go into nutrition? Like, you know everything about it. You know, you're all already like knowledgeable and you really like it. And, you know, you could uh, just make a career out of it. And actually, I she'd said that to me before, but I really didn't want to because I had this terrible memory of going to a dietitian when I was a kid because my mom brought me to a dietitian. And she, I remember like this lady just showing me like portion sizes of, I still have this memory with the plates and the fake pasta. And I was like, this is, first of all, I, I thought she was boring. And also like, I was not excited by her message. You know, <laughs> I was like, this lady telling me like what to eat with these ugly looking like fake pasta that oh I know they're so gross so I had this really bad memory about what dietitians did so I I didn't want to do that but then when my mom came like a few years later in Paris she's like you know should do that and I decided to just you know I was like you know what you're right like totally I'm obsessed let's just I'll just make a career career out of it so that's how I decided to start my bachelor's in dietetics Oh my gosh, I can so identify with that. I feel like the sort of obsession, the fact that you were just thinking about it all the time and already felt like you knew so much, that was exactly what drove me to go to grad school for nutrition and want to study the quote-unquote obesity epidemic because I thought I was, you know, helping somehow. Yeah, yeah. And also for me, during that gap here in France, I actually put on quite a bit of weight. And, um, you know, right before going to France, I had lost it a lot because I going to France, you know, I had to be very thin. That was uh, how I was thinking at the time. So obviously when I went there and then I put all the weight back on. So in my mind, I was like, well, I couldn't be, you know, a bigger dietitian. That's impossible. So it's gonna, it's gonna force me to figure out, you know, solve the problem of weight and myself, I'll become then this thin version of me and everything will be great. And I'll help people, just like you said, like I'll help people lose weight and keep it off. You know, that was my whole hope. And uh, that's why I went into it. 
makes so much sense that that hope and that sort of line of thinking when you're coming out of diet culture and when you're struggling with your own issues too. Cause I also was like, you know, still struggling with my own restriction and binging when I went back to school and definitely in the back of my mind was like, this will finally unlock the secret. This Now I'll finally be able to eat in this restrictive way that I want to, not labeling it as restrictive at the time, but seeing that with hindsight now, you know, I'll be able to eat this way, this quote unquote healthy way and finally lose weight. And I think that in that sense, it's not crazy to believe that being a dietitian will make you be thin because so many dietitians are thin women. So in my mind, like I just thought of this, but like it, it makes a lot of sense to believe that you'll put so much pressure on yourself if you believe that just through motivation, you know, you could do it not knowing what we know now, but it would make sense to be like, well, I'll be, I'll fit into the mold. You know, if I just put myself through what they did and like do what they do type of thing. Right. Because it's that belief underlying so much of diet culture that's like it's calories in, calories out or whatever. Like just find the perfect way of eating and you'll be thin and then it'll it'll last forever. And yeah, we know now it's just not true, but I can totally empathize with past versions of us that <laughs> thought differently. Yeah, because how were we supposed to know? It's so hard to, now, you know, we hear it more, but at the time I wasn't hearing that at all, that, you know, it's almost impossible to keep weight off long-term. I had no idea. Yeah. So it, it makes total sense that you would think you were going to unlock some key. What happened when you got to school for nutrition? When I started in nutrition, I knew that I could make links between my psych bachelor's and my new knowledge in nutrition. So I actually started reading about health psychology as I was going through, like during my first year. And also I you know, had this whole goal that I would lose weight during my schooling and so that I would be thin when I graduated. During that time, I kind of fell into, I discovered really all of that health psychology, like motivation, behavior change, all of that research about behavior change and, and weight. That's when I fell into, I think, like the wellness trap and just the whole like non-dieting dieting trap. Oh, yes. And that was really what got me to become extremely restrictive. And it was very gradual. But as you know, I read the bo a book by, I won't, say her name because I would I don't want anyone to read what she what she says but I found this book by a neuroscientist she was a PhD in neuroscience so already that was impressive to me and obviously she was this thinner white woman woman and she wrote a lot about behavior and motivation and all of that and how it related to weight because she had her own struggles and then she's like this is how I fix myself and uh, she did refer to a lot of research and it was just new concepts. And I was like, oh my God, this is a key. You know, I was looking for that key. And I was like, okay, there you go. I found the key. And it was true that I had never tried that. Like in my whole dieting thing, I was really trying to uh, white knuckle it. Like I was just, I, I was a Monday, like Monday person. Like, well, Monday I'll start a something, you know, like I'll start my diet and then everything will be different. You know, I was, I was really, tr I didn't really try to be like very creative in my dieting, which is not obviously now I'm like, no dieting is better. But I hadn't really like looked into the psychology of it. And when I looked into the psychology of it and I learned about all the like how to trick your brain and like, oh my God, you know, those people. Oh, yeah. Those little, yeah, quote unquote hacks, healthy hacks. Healthy hacks uh, and really understanding the behavior and motivation and like how marketing works and 
oh, like industry is the devil. So you like, this is how you protect yourself from them, you know, wanting you to eat all their bad foods, quote unquote. And so it was, I thought it was a very smart way of like <laughs> looking at it at the time. But yeah, eventually, I think, to be honest, like a part of it wasn't so bad. So I learned about mindful eating, but, you know, mindful eating for weight loss. I learned about enjoying food, all of that. And that uh, right now, of course, I'm still into that. And I, I want people to to learn to enjoy their food. But at the time, it was mixed in with the weight stuff. So it was it was still like pretty bad because as long as you have that motivation, as long as you're, you're trying to change your body, you'll always have that at the back of your mind. It's the diet culture motivation that is driving it. And so it's never going to be just mindful eating. And, and I think, yeah, mindful eating can easily get twisted in the service of weight loss. And I've seen it happen so often because I think people sort of think of it as a weight loss tool, you know, just eat mindfully and you'll lose weight. Exactly. Because it's the, the lie is like, if you eat mindfully, you'll eat less. Right. Everyone is eating so much these days. We don't need to eat all that food. Like just eat mindfully and you'll eat much less and then you'll lose weight. That's pretty much what they're saying, except they're using other language to make it sexy. But no, you know, so yeah, so it was all of that stuff. And I did learn some things that I think are still meaningful and useful today. But at the time, it was just so bad because I just, at first, um, I guess, at first, yeah, of course, I lost, you know, uh, some weight. And actually, I lost a lot of weight. And what happened was, when I was, um, I guess, at one point, I just, it wasn't possible for my body to lose more weight. And I was restricting a lot at that point. So at first it was like kind of okay in the sense that I actually felt much better about just eating in general because I was enjoying food before I was like not eating the foods I liked and stuff. But then I learned to like eat them, but just a bit less, you know, it's, it's really insidious. So during that time I was actually kind of enjoying myself and in being a nutrition student, I was seeing like the positive of foods. I was learning about nutrition. It was like more of a, it was kind of a positive time really that I was, I wasn't suffering so much. Well, now that I know what it is not to be dieting, I know that it wasn't great, but at the time for me, it was actually quite a good time. I felt, I felt fine. But then at one point, I think it just turned into extreme restriction because I was so worried that I was going to gain back the weight that I had lost that I just started to really like just yeah just restrict restrict more and more and also this person that I was talking about she uh, suggested the person the scientist neuroscientist she said in her book you know to weigh yourself Oof. yeah so I was weighing myself and I was graphing it it was awful and so as soon yeah as soon I was as I was gaining a bit of weight back I was so scared of course I think that's the way the pendulum swings, right? Is like, it can seem like it's just light dieting. I actually, this reminds me of a story I, I tell in my book from Glennis Oyston, who's been on the podcast before. And she shared that she was able to lose weight through what she calls light dieting and shrink herself into a, a place that she felt relatively comfortable with. But then the weight started coming back on. And so she ramped up the restriction more and more so that it became more and more disordered. And, you know, that there was really no way to stay with just the quote-unquote light dieting and maintain the weight loss. And so it, you know, I think that's the case so often and for, for the vast majority of people is that there is no sort of light restriction because, and even we have science showing this now that like, you know, what they call quote-unquote flexible dietary control is just on the same 
spectrum as rigid dietary control and you're always at risk of slipping to that rigid side if you're on the quote unquote flexible side, whereas intuitive eating is like off that spectrum altogether and just a whole different plane. So I think it's it's really interesting to think about your experience through that lens too, because it sounds like you were in that flexible dietary control place and you were like, la la la, things are good because they were, it felt objectively better than the restriction you had been doing before. Maybe it felt less restrictive, but then there was kind of no way to avoid getting pulled back to that more restrictive side of things. Yeah, exactly. And you know, now that I've looked into this and understood how weight works and how the body is just going to push back, you know, as hard as possible, there was no way for me to keep doing, you know, my flexible restraints. There was no way. And in fact, I I couldn't believe it, but at one point I started gaining weight back and you know, it was it was like tiny amounts, but I knew that I was still eating the way I was before. And so I knew that there was no difference there. And that really made me panic, you know, because, and now that I think back, I'm like, yeah, this is, this makes sense. Right. But at the time it did it, I was like, how am I eating the same amounts? And, you know, of course, by that time I was eating the same foods, really, there was very little, um, I'd lost a lot of the diversity of the foods I was having. So it was just like this small amount, little variety of foods I was having and the way started creeping back. And that really made me, I think, yeah, that was just the end of it. It became very, very, very hard and harder and harder by that time. And in fact, quickly after that, I started binging again, which I hadn't been really. So I, I had a little bit of binging, but it was mostly restraint. And, you know, I thought it was very successful and I was very proud of myself. But then I think at that point, it was probably like the critical weight, you know, where my body was like, okay, alarm, alarm, something's has to change. And so it was just like, I started binging and it was very, very, very painful. And that's when I realized, okay, I need to do something about this. This can't go on. And once again, it was the binging that made me want to change things and try something different. Because other than that, you know, I I was very happy that I had finally been able to to lose such a big amount of weight. So the binging just made it terrible, painful, and uh, and just unbearable. So that's when I had to change things. It's so interesting, too, that binging is that like canary in the coal mine almost, you know, the binging is the thing that we we think is indicative that something's really wrong and like means we have to get it together and like fix things. And, you know, that that can actually, you know, ultimately can lead to recovery when when the binging kind of points you in the right direction of disordered eating recovery, but it can also lead to so much more dieting and diet culture stuff when you get pointed in a different direction when it's like healer binging through orthorexic behaviors, basically. I definitely like at first I looked into binging, you know, I was Googling binging all the time. I was like, okay, how do I fix my binging without eating more? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was the thing. Oh, always, always. Yeah. And like, you know, there's, uh, anyways, I once again, won't name names, but uh, there was a person that wrote a book about this. And basically the book was like, well, just don't binge. <laughs> Literally, that was what she was, she was like, when you get the urge. And then she was like, think, talk about all these tricks. But basically all she was saying is like, don't do it. Which I think is so much, yeah, so much of what gets taught about binge eating, recovery, and diet culture is some version of that. It's like, here are all these ways to distract yourself from binging. Here are all these tools and techniques to do instead of binging and sort of seeing binging as this like coping skill gone awry, which 
you know, it is a coping skill in some way, but I think the thing that gets missed a lot of the time, especially in that sort of framework is like, it's a coping skill for not eating enough. <laughs> like it's a coping skill for hunger and it's actually your body taking care of itself, even though it can feel really painful and out of control. But I think part of what feels so out of control about it is the shame and the stigma that's placed on binging and placed on weight gain as well. And if we, if we removed that stigma and shame, we could see binging through the lens of, oh, this is a survival mechanism. This is my body trying to take care of me. Exactly. This is me. This is my body trying to protect myself, protect me from malnourishment. Right. I think a lot of the rhetoric around binging is the same as the rhetoric around cravings. So, uh, you know, like take a walk if you have a craving, take a shower, just like distract yourself. And in fact, I went to see a psychologist when during that time when I was trying to fix my binging and oh my God, she was not helpful at all. She looked at me and I was telling her, you know, I think I'm eating enough, you know, but I mean, come on, she's supposed to be a, a eating disorders like specialist. She had that in her description. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm eating enough. You know, I'm a nutrition student, so, you know, I should be fine. And she was like, okay, like she believed me. And she told me, she commented on my body. She told me I looked fine. Oh. Yeah. And so it's like, you couldn't possibly have a problem because you look fine and you say you're eating enough. So I'm not going to question you. She did not come back to that. And she really tried to help me to stop binging, but I wasn't eating enough. So it didn't work. And she was the one to tell me like, oh, you could. Yeah, she told me that. Jeez. All these ways of distracting yourself from the fact that you're not eating enough. And of course, those things don't work or only work up into a point because you can distract your body or jolt your body out of its needs for some small period of time but that's never going to last in the long term and then the underlying deprivation is still there so it likely makes the next binge urge even greater exactly yeah so at that point i was really desperate after going to see her for a few times i went several times and then i just had this like this feeling like she's not helping me at all also she was quite expensive <laughs> So I was like, you know what, I'm done with this, but things were still getting worse. And so eventually I just reached that rock bottom that a lot of us, I think, reach where I was like, you know what, I think I read, I started reading that, you know, I had to eat. <laughs> and uh, eventually I also found your podcast a few months in, I think. And you kept saying like, you know, you have to eat. <laughs> you want to stop binging. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm ready to consider the possibility that I need to eat more. So I did. And quickly, the binging went down and decreased and eventually disappeared. Like, as I went through really the re-nourishing myself. That's amazing. I'm so glad that the podcast was there for you when you needed that message and when you were ready to hear it too, because I think it's so true. People have to be ready to consider the possibility of eating more because I think sometimes when you're so stuck in diet culture and have that internalized weight stigma going on, it's just not even really possible to be open to that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I remember because I, I had been listening to you for a while and I was also over-exercising, and I remember um, at one point I was listening to, to you, and I was still over Like I, I knew I was actively over-exercising, but you were kind of talking, you were like in my ear telling me things, and I wasn't really doing them, but it was like, you know, this little message that you, you don't want to hear until you do? Yeah. But I was just, I just kept listening, you know? I just kept listening once in a while, and then eventually 
yeah, eventually there was this trigger point where I just went all in and then it was just recovery from there. It was very quick. Just, yeah, I just went like, like really cold turkey is the best way for me to explain it. Cold turkey on dieting. Like, <laughs> <laughs> What do you think it was that, that prompted that shift? I think it was definitely the pain that I was going through, like the psychological pain I was going through. It was just very, I, I don't know how to explain. It was just very, very painful. Just that's really the word that comes to mind. Just the suffering of it, you know, psychologically. My, it was just painful, like physical pain, but in my brain. And I was always thinking about it. And I was just, I don't know, I was just fed up at one point. I think it just reached that point. And actually, a few, several months in, or was it a year? I'm not sure, but actually that might have been a trigger time when my mom got sick. So my mom got a diagnosis of terminal illness. And at that time, I told myself, I'm wasting time. I'm wasting time, like going to the gym all the time. And obviously, you know, at that at that point, I couldn't go as often because I was taking care of her. I wanted to go see her. She was in between like going to hospitals and just at home. And so I was, I was uh, spending a lot of time with her. I knew, obviously, my priority was her. There was no point, like, I'm not going to go to the gym. You know, I'm going to go see my mom. It was very obvious. And... It was. It kind of made me just realize how there's way more important things in life than restricting going and going to the gym. So I think that helped quite a lot. And also, I had met my current partner, and uh, he's actually an intuitive eater. So he and you know a thin guy, you know, never really had an issue with uh, weight and even body image. He was very, always very detached from like what people thought of him. That's so so nice. that. Was- refreshing yeah mm-hmm. it was refreshing but at the same time i think it was also because he had such positive feedback from people without asking for it type of thing yeah the thin privilege kind of allows people to continue to be intuitive eaters sometimes i think it was the thin privilege but just in general like it's easy not to care about people when you're always getting positive feedback about your career about your smarts about even your looks you know so but it's it's still incredible to me how intuitive and positive he is so it was like a very interesting example for me to to follow and very supportive I kind of told him what I was going through it was still very early on but I remember specifically this uh this discussion we had where I I told him you know I'm I'm choosing to take care of myself and I'm probably going to gain weight I don't know how much weight and probably a lot, you know, because I knew that at that point it was just, I was restricting so much. So I told him, you know, it's very possible that my body will change. And I just need you to know that I'm choosing myself over you. Like, if you don't like this, you can go. (laughs) Ah, I love that. That's amazing. It was crazy. Actually, I couldn't believe, you know, because it was, he was my dream guy, but I was like, you know what? He's not my dream guy if he can't support me in this. So it was very I felt very courageous even to tell him that, but I told him that. And then his answer was very rational because he's a very rational person. So he was like, you know what? I really like you. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but just go for it. I support you in what you're going to do because it's positive and it just makes so much sense and you shouldn't suffer. So he was very supportive. And then I think like a few years in, which is, I find, I found really funny. He actually told me like, you know what? Now I know for sure. It doesn't matter what you look like, like, um, no, we're together for good. Like, don't worry. But that was, I had already like gone through recovery, gained a lot of weight, whatever. It was just like, you know, we have a kid. So, 
So it's a beautiful story, I think, of uh, support from him that, yeah, that we have. God, that's amazing. And so awesome of you to set the tone and set the boundary so early on and just be like, look, this is what's up. And if you can't handle it, then walk away. <laughs> and like, and so great that he stuck with it and was was there for you. I feel like those moments early in a relationship can really like set the tone and sort of test the strength of the relationship. And it sounds like he passed with flying colors. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's funny to think about it now, but I think also it was easier because it was the beginning of a relationship for me to say this. So I really feel for people that have to go through this with their partners like much later on, because then maybe you have a child, maybe, you know, maybe there's many other things attaching you to this person. Maybe they don't react positively. Like, what do you do then? You know, I was very lucky. First of all, he reacted positively and it was the beginning. So I think that was also, you know, that helped me to be courageous and to tell him that. Yeah, I really feel for people who have to go through, you know, partners not wanting to support and just being attached to like then being at a certain weight and just not being as supportive of recovery. It must be very hard to go through. Yeah, I, I see that a fair amount too. I feel like with clients, there's, I don't know, percentages, but it feels like, you know, a certain percentage is the partners are end up re being really supportive and maybe they've had, you know, difficulties kind of getting their head around the ideas at first, but they come around and they're supportive. And then another percentage, the partners just have so much of their own stuff in the way that it's really impossible for them to be the support that their partner needs them to be. But at the same time, I think, you know, when partners are struggling, it can be hard. But if partners are struggling and decide to go on, take that route with the person that's, you know, in active recovery or just working through that, it can be really beautiful, you know, to work on that together. And so just like I had some friends who were kind of listening from far and just because I started blogging and I started yeah being a bit more vocal about, you know, health at every side, intuitive eating at one point. And um I know that some, some of my friends also, most of my close friends actually were like really interested and they actually benefited, I think, from that. Even my mom, she was, uh, yeah, she really like, at first she was, yeah, she was resisting it, but um, she never really fully accepted, I think, but she, she really wanted to support me because she saw how good it was for me to completely change that pers that perspective on food and eating and stuff. And even for herself, I know she took a bit of the, the learnings that I, yeah, the new things I was learning, she took on too, but it was really positive for her too, I think. That's so awesome. Just the fact that someone who was so entrenched in her own struggles with disordered eating, even if she couldn't entirely give that up, could be there for you and, and support you in that is really amazing. Yeah. And in fact, that's a bit contradictory, but she, you know, when she was going through chemo, she lost a ton of weight. And we talked about how ironic it was, you know, that she was so excited about that. She was so happy about it, you know, knowing that it came from a terrible diagnosis. And, you know, we didn't know when she was going to die, but it was going to be pretty soon and all of that. And we're able to have like very frank conversations about about that. Yeah, that's that's awesome that she was able to be that self-aware about it, too, because uh, and how what a what a sad testament to how diet culture gets a hold of us that she would be celebrating weight loss through chemo, which is really painful. I mean, from what I hear from people who've gone through it, there's a lot of side effects and, you know, weight loss is one of them, but it's because of lack of appetite and nausea and all the stuff that is not good. Yeah. And not being able to enjoy the foods that she enjoyed, you know, she couldn't eat 
the because of the taste changes and fatigue and just ugh, it was awful you know chemo was really hard and the radiotherapy too very hard very hard but it was ironic to say the least but it gave way to some interesting conversations and yeah that's amazing that you're able to have those conversations with her even if she wasn't entirely hadn't entirely changed her own tune I'm curious, too, how your own career evolved in this process. You know, were you working as a dietitian in sort of the traditional weight management paradigm and then slowly shifted over as your own relationship with food healed? Or how did that work for you? But actually, I was very lucky because, first of all, my bachelor's took longer than the normal time. So I think it took me like four and a half years instead of three, three and a half, something like that. And so it gave me time to recover. So when I graduated, I was actually the haze person at school. I was the intuitive eating haze, like just being really annoying in class sometimes. And it's funny because then after that, I had like classmates coming to me and being like, oh, what about this? And just like send me links. And so people were curious, but I was very adamant about, you know, the importance of haze and how we shouldn't anyways, all of the issues that we have in the current dietetics curriculum. Yeah, I was really questioning that. And I asked, you know, to go to a specific like organization during one of my rotations that was working against like weight stigma and, you know, promoting positive body image. I went to an eating disorders treatment program as a student too. I finished my curriculum in eating disorders and it was, wow, it was so good. I'm so happy that I did that. I think it just really like finished everything beautifully for me. And I was able to really feel proud of myself, you know, all the way that I had Everything I had gone through is really, it, it allowed me to be able to be in that rotation, not feel triggered, you know, nothing. It was just, it was really nice. And I, I love also just being in that environment. Yeah. So it really showed you kind of what area you wanted to work in, what you were interested in. Yeah, 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 totally. So fortunate. And I think it's tricky when people have to be working in the field, going through their own recovery. So it's nice that you had that sort of insulation of still being in school and getting to like experiment with being the haze person and the intuitive eating person in that kind of relatively safe environment. Yeah, I think I had like my school doesn't talk about haze and they're not not at all into that. But Actually, it's changing a little bit now, I think. I really wanted to change. I've been like talking to profs and stuff. But yeah, it was, I think they're still very understanding, even though they didn't really get it, like the profs and even my classmates. I still felt uh, pretty good. I didn't feel that triggered most of the time, you know, interestingly. So I think it was just a good, just good people, even though the material was really bad um i could still rant about it to like my friends and my boyfriend and my family and so it wasn't so bad in the end yeah that's great to have that support system and people who are more open it sounds like at the program yeah i'm curious to talk a little more about pregnancy and that whole piece because you recently had a baby and i'm curious to hear how pregnancy and recovery maybe challenged your body image and brought up some some stuff or how you navigated that? Pregnancy was actually challenging for me in terms of my body image. And I was very, very surprised actually to experience those challenges because when I got pregnant, I was very happy. And, you know, I was like not worried at all about my body 
seeing my body change. I was just expecting it. And it was like, it's a natural thing. And just all the body positive messages and just fat positive. And I had been feeling very stable in my own body image before that. So yeah, I was not expecting to struggle with the body changes. So it, it was, I started kind of reading about, uh, just like pregnancy, how how more like the scientific, the biological, the physiological aspects to it to understand more and to make it because I'm a rational person. So I think that actually helped just with the body image, obviously remembering, of course, fat phobia and, you know, this is coming. Where is this coming? from? I was really pissed off at first. You know, I was like, where is this coming from? Like, especially being a practitioner in the field, I was like, I felt quite guilty feeling having like negative feelings towards you know my body and so it was what happened was I decided to look into the physiology of it and you know give myself a lot of self-compassion I realized that I had gotten so relaxed about just having a positive body image and just being you know happy about things that I had kind of stopped practicing that self-compassion piece because I didn't have to as much because I wasn't actively like working on that you know so I had kind of lost that. And so I realized going through my pregnancy and even, even postpartum that uh, self-compassion is huge and uh, uh, for me. And I knew that before, but it was just like a rediscovery, you know, and I work with my clients on self-compassion because it's so important. But uh, just rediscovering it for myself, it's been really, really helpful. And now, you know, things are much better. I just had to go back to that work for myself and just, it's constant, but I just really had to delve back in, you know, a bit deeper. Yeah, totally. I'm curious what triggered those negative thoughts, do you think? Were you exposed to more diet culture in pregnancy through the medical field than you expected? With the medical field, I had some interactions. My doctor was actually quite good. I told her like, I didn't want her to mention my weight. Like I allowed her to weigh me because of preeclampsia and just some of the things that obviously, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're avoiding. But I told her like, unless there's something really, really bad, don't, don't talk to me about my weight. And that was not even to protect like myself, my body image. It was just like, I just generally now, I just always tell doctors to not weigh me just as a statement, because I know that it's hard for people to do it. And the more people do it, the more doctors are going to be okay with it and not be defensive about it. So I would always do that, you know, but she was actually quite good. She didn't, she almost didn't mention it. But then at one point she said, you know, you're kind of going over the curve there in terms of weight gain, but it shouldn't be, you know, too bad. And I told her like, I, I told you not to. <laughs> actually I did tell her right away. Like the next time I saw her, I was like, you know, last time you, you made a comment and it actually made me worry and feel guilty. And, and it wasn't about like, you know, wondering, Oh my God, am I gaining weight? And my body is uh, too big. It was more like, what am I doing wrong? Which is so silly when you think about it. But when a doctor tells you, this is not right. doesn't matter what it is. Like most of us are going to feel guilty. If, if we think there's some part of it is behavioral is us doing something wrong you know? So I was like, oh my God, is my baby going to be okay? And it's so dumb because I know this, you know, I went back to the research, I reread it, but I knew it. I knew that it's totally normal for people to be gaining over the curve and under the curve and it just changes. But at the time, yeah, it made me feel quite bad. And I told her, I told my doc, but I don't think that that was really what precipitated um, the whole thing. I think that it was losing my mom, actually, that was probably me transposing that hurt to the body image. And I re that was a really big piece in my healing, you know, a few years back. It was knowing that, you know, my 
bad body days, quote unquote, were really related to my mood and the things that were going on outside of my body image, outside of my body. So I lost my mom a few months in. It was a very weird mix to be pregnant and losing a parent. And, you know, she actually survived much longer than we thought. So that was good. But at the same time, yeah, it was hard. And I think that pain I just transposed. And also just, uh, you know, in the community, the body positive, fat, fat positive, I just don't find as many resources or as many Facebook groups or as many resources for pregnant people. I think that I didn't have an easy access to that type of help quickly. So I realized that there might be a, a little bit of a gap there in terms of the fat positive and pregnancy. There's a few, like I found some accounts, but it wasn't as easy to find. But I think it was the pain, the, the pain of losing mom. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I mean, I can't imagine how painful that experience must have been and just so fraught emotionally, especially when you're pregnant too. And Yeah, the hormones. Yeah, it must have been just, oh, I, my heart goes out to you. It sounds like such a, a hard experience. And, you know, you're gaining weight too in pregnancy, which is a normal part of the process. But I think it's it's so understandable to like put the painful feelings onto body image and then with that added trigger in diet culture of your body changing and getting larger, it's so easy for it to sort of click over into something that feels really big. Yeah. And like you were just saying, I realized, you know, when you're gaining weight during a pregnancy and even losing weight postpartum for, for, for some women, it's a constant reminder of your body. And I think that I had gotten really good at just not even really thinking about my body before. I was just, I was never like the type to really care that much about, you know, my appearance. You know, I really got over that. And so I was into like more, you know, what I was doing and just really valued myself for all sorts of things. So I kind of even forgot a bit about it. I was just like, yeah, this is my body. This is who I am. I don't, I don't, I don't care. But when you're pregnant, then you're constantly reminded of, I have this body, which is this big, and now it's getting bigger, and now it's getting bigger, and or now it's changing. Maybe now it's losing weight after a pregnancy, you know? But it's just, it's, um, you have to constantly reaccept yourself and reaccept yourself and reaccept yourself. And I think that it's important to do the work in terms of fat phobia and really kind of working on those last, because obviously all of this is coming from fat phobia. So even though I've done a ton of work and I'm really invested and rationally and I know fat phobia is so stupid and fuck fat phobia. But, you know, those are the remnants and this is where I need to do the work. You know, clearly there is more work to be done and that's what I'm doing now. So that's what I'm taking from it. Yeah, I love that you shared that and thank you so much for sharing that experience because I think it is there are too few resources for people going through this who are already health at every size and anti-diet, but, you know, having their own stuff maybe be stirred up again, especially through pregnancy. It's an area that I think we need definitely more resources on. And I've been thinking about it myself, too, recently, just with, you know, a lot of questions I've been getting and sort of thinking about my own potential future pregnancy, if that happens and all of that stuff. So, I think a lot of people resonate with what you're saying. Yeah, I'm glad. I think, uh, you know, I wasn't, I was feeling a bit vulnerable talking about it, but um, I think it's just, it's better to, yeah, to just talk about the hard stuff. Uh, you no, know, even if it's still current, even though, you no, know, it's still a bit of a, a, a challenge. 
But uh, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to share that. Well, and I think, yeah, that's such a good point too, that I think we're conditioned to want to only talk about stuff after it's done. And, you know, in some cases that can be self-protective and a good self-care move to not go deep into your stuff when you're still in process. But I think in other cases, it could be valuable to share just because other people then get the awareness and the knowledge that people in this movement are not quote unquote perfect. You know, there is no perfection and we're not these like magical creatures who are somehow now above diet culture (laughs) that it still can, can come back and trip you up sometimes. And that's just a testament to how big and powerful and oppressive and all encompassing this culture is that it can even trigger these kinds of thoughts in people who are working so actively against it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that the fact that, you know, going through it with my mom, I guess I was at one point I wasn't reading as much or I wasn't as, you know, I was working and I was I also started a master's degree. So at one point I wasn't as immersed into Hayes, like I was still, you know, working in Hayes and all of that, but I wasn't reading as much, you know. And I think that that might have actually played a role because it's just like you take a little bit of a, a smell outside, you know, of like what diet, diet culture and it just like comes into your house and you did really didn't want it to come in. So you have to push it back, back out, you know, and even though before um, even you, like I'm sure most of us, we don't have perfect body image, but we have pretty good, you know, and we're able to live our daily lives without thinking about it. But even that is a testament because it's not perfect for anyone. But then once you maybe get triggered by a new thing, you know, you, you still have to do the work. And that's what I tell my clients, you know, there's no end to this work. Because our bodies will change and we will go through stuff over the years. You know, I shared recently on the podcast that I had been having some a flare up of Hashimoto's thyroiditis based on some medication changes and, you know, was feeling really tired. And one thing that I didn't share there that I'll share now is that I also had a little bit of weight gain and suddenly my clothes weren't fitting and I was having to buy some new clothes and was like, you know, having to think about my body too. It was like from years of not really having to think about it because my size hadn't changed and wearing the same clothes year to year and not having to do like an overhaul to then having to be confronted with this and having to think about this was like, okay, I definitely have more empathy now for my clients who are having to go through this weight gain process because like you said, it really does kind of force you to think about your body. I feel so lucky that that happened in a moment when I was relatively feeling good and had just written this book and like immersed myself in all this research and then had to reread my own book like 50 times. <laughs> like, I think that was actually helpful, you know, to keeping me in, keeping me immersed in the literature and constantly thinking about this stuff to combat and push back the diet culture that could have incurred on my happiness and well-being and stuff with the with the small amount of weight gain that I had. But so luckily, I think I was in a decent place to deal with it. And it was still just like something I had to think about and like, oh, I don't know if this is going to fit me anymore. I might have to get a new whatever. It never it never goes away. Those moments in life where you have to start thinking about your body again for a second, you will need the skills to push back diet culture in those moments. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything that you did and for for being here. Really love talking with you. Tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work. Uh, yes. So nutritionpositive.ca is my website. And over there, I have a blog that I need to write more for uh, because I, you know, I was pregnant. And But there's still some stuff there. But actually, I have to say, I work in French. So I blog in French. 
and I have a Facebook page as well, Nutrition Positive, so Nutrition Positive, if you will. But most of the stuff I post is in French. And then on Instagram as well, at Nutrition.Positive, for the francophones out there, at Nutrition.Positive. I love it. It's so great that you're doing it in French too, because I think there are there's such a need for resources in the francophone world. And like you said, you know, France has such a, a sort of storied diet culture of its own and body image thin ideal is so so entrenched in French culture. So I think it's really great that you have this this as a resource. Yeah, actually, I decided on purpose to do, you know, I was wondering, should I do it in French or in English? But um, you know, here I'm in Quebec and it's a francophone province as well. So I decided to just make it more accessible to people, to francophones specifically, because it's so needed. We're like miles away from where, you know, the US is or even like English Canada is, is at. Yeah, I love it. I hope that you can lead the charge on that to, to spread the message to that world. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And yeah, so great talking with you. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Julia Levy and Didgeru for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message because who doesn't by sharing this episode and subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can see all the platforms where you can subscribe at christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path for yourself, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com slash 231. That's christyharrison.com slash 231. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Melissa Alam. Our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And I'm your host and producer, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stay psyched.